Church, uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Colossians, um, uh, chapter 3, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. We're going to read the first verse uh, in chapter 1. And as you're finding your place, uh, if you didn't know this yet, this past week, uh, our worship team released sort of their own uh, cover, I guess, of that, of that song. And so if that ministers to your heart, thanks to Elizabeth Peterson kind of putting it together uh, for us. And you can see that on, on social media and a couple different places as well. And uh, so deeply always impressed and proud of our worship team. Uh, you guys always sound incredible, and I'm grateful that we get to worship alongside you each morning. Uh, Today, uh, I've been sort of uh, not dreading today, but also we've been talking about today because we've been doing a couple of things a little bit different uh, over the past couple of weeks. If you're a guest or a visitor, uh, you know or you don't know this, but I'm telling you this. Typically, uh, what I like to do, my sweet spot, is to get get seven or eight verses and sort of walk through those uh, passages expositionally. And we're attempting to do that, but we've slowed down a little bit over the past several weeks, uh, in particular because when we get to this part in the book of Colossians, we get some very specific application for the believer. So if all of these things are true in Colossians 1, 2, and 3, leading up to this point, if Jesus really is who he says he is, that it has tremendous application for us as believers in how we interact with our spouses, how we view marriage, how we treat our moms and dads, how we serve as children. And then now we get to one of the more difficult passages in all of the Bible that exists in a couple other places, conceptually the idea of how are we supposed to reconcile what seems to be an endorsement of slavery in the Bible for the believer. And so today, what my hope is, especially for you college students, that you sort of swim in the soup, if you will, uh, around university students and around coworkers and others that, that perhaps are skeptics of the Bible. Maybe they're agnostic, maybe they're atheists, and they don't believe that there is a God or there could be a God, but why would I serve the God of the Bible in particular when there seems to be a great contradiction in the word in particular where Paul is calling the church and admonishing the church to submit to their masters, to be good slaves, to be good bondservants. And so my hope today is simply to give us a framework in how to think through this. And so Paul tells us elsewhere that we ought to be always have a be prepared to give it a reason and to give an account and and to understand what we believe. And and is it even possible to reconcile these kinds of issues with the Bible? And, And does it seem to undermine the Bible if we can't? Or perhaps does it make the Bible even more trustworthy when we begin to understand it properly within its own case? So when Paul writes this letter to this church in Colossae, historians would estimate that out of the 120 million people that existed in the Roman Empire, over half of them, 60 million plus, existed in the culture and in the society, and they were slaves. So can you imagine just for a moment living in a a culture, a state, or even a country where, where half the known population before you, they had been conquered and they had been brought into slavery. They, they worked for a master and, and they did varying things and, and they were exploited greatly. And so in Paul comes and he, and he writes this letter 
And yet he doesn't seem to, to tell them to overthrow the, those that are over them. He, he simply tells them that they ought to, to walk humbly and justly and to see them as a person in his image. Now, before we get to the meat of the text or to the heart of it, I want to say this. What we're going to do is we're going to isolate a few words that exist here. We're going to provide a, a framework for it. We're going to look at the trees, but then we're going to back out and look at the forest. Because what we have to understand is, is that when he talks about bond servants and he talks about slaves in this moment, he does so after talking about husbands and wives. He does so after talking about how we care for our families and how we care for our parents. And the reason why those two things are important up until this point where he talks about slaves is this is meant to, to shape our view and understanding that all people in all times in all locations and in all places, we, we are called to live as a people who are under the authority of something. We live under the authority. And at the heart of Paul's message is he is deeply concerned with the church in this moment. That they're not living in particular as a people who are living as those that are under authority. And in fact, they're being mistreated and they're being maligned. And so he comes in. And so I want you to pick up with me. I'm going to read beginning in verse 22. We're going to read all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. And so you can follow along with me where the word of God says this. Bond servants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer is going to be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Therefore, masters, treat your bondservants justly. Be fair, knowing that you also have a master who is in heaven. Now, when we read this part in the letter in Colossae, it is loaded with language that should make us, to some degree and form, it should make us a little bit uncomfortable. It should make us a little bit uneasy because it seems in this moment for, for all the good things that Paul had done, when he writes this letter to him, don't you wish he just would have said within your heart and in your feelings, slaves, overthrow your earthly masters, free yourselves. Hasn't that been the entirety of the story in the book of Exodus about God delivering his people from the hand of Pharaoh? And yet in this moment, he, he says slaves and he says bondservants, you obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now when we look in verse 22 at that word bondservant or that word slave, it comes from a Greek word, and I'm doulos, and that doesn't really matter except that when we see this word in the Greek, it's translated often in one of three ways, either slave, either servant, or either bondservant. And it can go in different ways in the book of Ephesians and 1 Peter and elsewhere. We, we see this word used interchangeably. He's a servant. He's a slave. But he's only perhaps maybe a bondservant in this moment. And so how are we to, to then view this and, and to understand this? And so oftentimes what historians, New Testament historians in particular will say about this is that in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, most of these slaves that existed, they were not born slaves, but rather they were a people that at some point got conquered by the Roman Empire. And so they lived their lives, they fought the Romans, the Romans invaded or they invaded Rome and they go to war and they lose. And the consequence of that ultimately, if not death, is then you then become a servant or then you become a slave. This was the brutality of the Romans. 
This was the brutality that existed within that time frame. You either killed them and conquered them or they killed you. And if you were lucky, maybe you were lucky, maybe it was a greater form of punishment. You were brought into their household and you were given certain duties and responsibilities that existed. They were mostly prisoners of war. They would have been slaughtered if not made slaves. Now, when we think of the term slavery, and we think about it today, when we think of the idea that someone would, would be brought into service, would be forced to, to be brought in, oftentimes what we're doing in that moment is we are seeing it through our American lens and American eyes. And, and what I mean by that is what we refer to or historians refer to as chattel slavery, C-H-A-T-T-E-L. And it's the form of slavery in which we, if we've seen films like 12 Years a Slave or, or read other books that in regards to that, all the things that would have happened pre-Civil War. And so oftentimes we will look at the language of the New Testament through the lens in which we understand it. And certainly the Romans at times were brutal. Certainly the Romans at times were, were vicious people that did horrible things that were worthy of punishment and worthy of judgment. And so when he comes to this point and he says, slaves, obey in everything that you do. He tells them to submit to him. And so we, we go, that doesn't feel right. It, it, it doesn't sound right. Could it be that the Bible that you and I read is a Bible that actually endorses slavery at that point if it doesn't outright prohibit it in that moment? To be extra clear to you this morning and, and to say this emphatically, slavery in any sense, it perverts God's created intention for human beings. Slavery in any sense, it perverts God's created intention for all human beings beings. It is unequivocally, it is wrong. It is sinful. It is shameful. Yet it is a part of the country in which we live in, but also it is a part of every other country that has ever existed. That prior to the 18th century and really the 17th century, the idea that, that any race, any class could take any other group of people and bring them in and make them their slaves. It was a part of almost every culture. In fact, one historian that I read this week said, you can't name a culture that at some point did not have slaves to a certain degree. Now, certain cultures were more brutal about it. Certain cultures, we, we, we've seen and, and we've watched those things and, and we've read about those things and we've seen the pictures at times, but slavery in any sense, it absolutely perverts God's created intention for human beings. Yet, Paul goes on and he says, slaves and bondservants obey everything for those that you're earthly masters, not by way of eye service, to not be a people pleaser. And so in one sense, you have this pre-Civil War view of slavery, yet oftentimes in the Bible, what we would refer to when we translate that word doulos and we translate it out into the phrase bondservant in which you would see, sometimes this form of slavery would incur because you owed a debt that you couldn't pay. And so you would sell your, your services, if you will. You would sell whatever you were vocationally good at. You would be indebted to that person. He would then become your master until you worked off the debt that was owed. 
And you would go home and in some instances and you would still live with your family and you would still raise kids and, and they would still pay wages at times. They may garnish those wages to a degree and you may only get a percent of it, but, but you work to pay the debt off that was owed. And so when he says, obey in everything, not by way of eye service, not as people pleasers, what he is saying to the church more specifically is this, is that you have been given authority over and in your life that is necessary for you to function. You're given bosses and, and, and pastors and, or elders and, and you're given RAs and people that, that exist over you in some degree with some responsibility, not that they're better than you, but this is the system in which you live in. And so what he's saying is, as we see those that are in authority over us, he says, don't do things to please them by way of just eye service. It's, it's the person that's always at the right time, at the right place and doing certain things to win the approval of one, but then everybody knows when the person leaves the room, the person goes back. It's the individual in middle school or it's the individual at doing an MBA where you're assigned a group project and you go to the class and they've not done any of the work until they get in front of the teacher and the professor and then they seek to claim credit for all the work that they did. He says simply, do not do those things for eye service. Do not be just a people pleaser, but rather let your motivation be this, a sincerity of heart, to let your motivation be that, that you do the things today that you're called to do with a sincerity of heart and because in particular, he says, you fear the Lord. For whatever you do, work heartily as it, as for the Lord and not for men. Understand, ultimately, God has put that person or that woman over in, in your life, that man in your life. And, and he says, listen, as you execute the things that, that you agreed to do, you, you do it as unto the Lord, not as unto men. But you obey and, and you respect those lines and, and you respect those boundaries. And so we begin to see Paul as he's fleshing this out that, that the, the primary responsibility or principle that he wishes to, to tell the church is that authority and submission are, are, are intricate to Paul's thought process with his people. Years ago, I had an individual that, that worked for me and uh, I'd asked her to do a couple things and, and she didn't do them. We came back and corrected it. And, and then I asked her to do a couple more things. She didn't do it. And I came back and I said, listen, I, I need to be really clear. I need you to do these three or four things. And, and she says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm working for the Lord, not you. And I said, well, that may be true. Uh, the Lord is our ultimate authority, but I've been given and entrusted to be your authority. And, and so I need you to, I understand that. And let's, let's discern the will of God uh, together, but let's ultimately understand that there's lines that exist and God gives us people and he, and he puts them in our lives and, and he, if they ask you to do something, you, you do that thing and unless it crosses a, a barrier of sin or it's immoral or unethical or, or it's going to send you to jail, there, there are certain lines that you say, I'm not willing to cross, but you, you also live as someone who, who is under that authority. Why, do we, why does Paul say to do that? He gives us two reasons for it. Number one, the, the motivation is, is clear. Verse 24, why do we obey those that are in authority over us? Well, we know from the Lord we're going to receive the inheritance. Like the Lord is, is going to reward and he's going to repay us back with our faithfulness. But then he, he gives us a negative warning after that. He will repay the faithfulness. But for the wrongdoer in verse 25, look what he says. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, for there is no partiality. 
So in other words, if, if we find ourselves as men and women under authority and we do things, not that are just wrong, but I think it goes back specifically to what we see in verse 22. If we're always doing things for eye service, to be seen, if we're always doing things because our motivation is just entirely to, to please people, if we're always doing things and our hearts aren't really sincere in what we're doing, if we're always doing things and we really don't fear the Lord but fear all the wrong things, then he says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done for there is no partiality. But notice what he says in the midst of this, knowing that the Lord will receive for the wrongdoer and yet there is no partiality. But, but I want you to see verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, masters, therefore, treat your, your servants, treat your slaves, uh, treat your, uh, those who are there, treat them justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I want to remind us of one truth that exists here in that moment. As Paul writes these things, he writes them to the church. And he's telling them to, to be fair to one another. And he's telling them to, to have a sense of, of being just towards one another, to be right before one another, to, to, to treat each other in a way that, that honors Christ. Listen, I want to say this to you, that no one will look to the Christian for a sense of justice if the relationships within the church are just as flawed and unjust as in the world. And any sense of motivation that you have to, to see God's justice be, be carried out, to, to see that just righteous God, to see him carried out, if we don't do that to one another, if we don't treat each other fairly, if we are not just to one another, if we don't see one another as made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, no one nor better than, than anyone else in the room, if we don't treat each other that way and understand that truth, then the world is never going to turn to the church to understand what we understand as biblical justice. And rather what happens is they go off into other ideologies and they define, therefore at that point, their own sense of justice. That perhaps maybe the, the biggest indictment of the church is, is when we don't pursue that sense and it's just as flawed and, and just as unjust as the rest of the world. Therefore, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That phrase this past week has just sort of captured me in verse one, to, to be just and to be fair. And I want to help us understand this this morning because I think it's really important because this word justice gets thrown around in a lot of weird, peculiar ways in our culture and in our world. It gets defined in strange and funny ways on college campuses and on places in, like Twitter and Facebook and social media and in the news. There's all kinds of these different definitions of what justice is and what the people of God should actually be doing. And so one of the more helpful understandings of it, I think, is in this clear definition where it just simply says justice to be just is rooted in the character of a just God it's understanding that any sense of justice that we pursue it is rooted in his character and it therefore then involves his people to to be advocates of of, of that individual and that person to be people that are fair to be people that are generous to to be people that that pursue equality and that we we long for those things in those days we yearn for those things to happen in the midst of that we advocate for for people that that can't advocate for themselves 
That's why at our church, one of the things that I love about our church is that uh, at one point up until the recent future, because some retired, uh, we supported, and some of you supported, uh, three of them individually, and some it was one or two, but three crisis pregnancy centers that are associated with Travis Avenue Baptist Church. And directors and and CEOs that attended here to to advocate for for the most vulnerable, to to advocate for those who couldn't advocate for themselves, to pursue a sense of fairness and generosity, to pursue a sense of equality. But when we go back to the heart of, of the issue this morning that we're looking at, I want to sort of frame this idea of the question, does, does the Bible really seem to endorse this? And, and why would God not put all of these things to an end quickly? And I think one thing that we should remember is this idea that God's timing is not always our timing. And though we see and we look back through history, thousands upon thousands of years, and we cry out to our God of all the injustices that we've seen and witnessed and that we've read about in the history books, all of those things, the thousands of years before our God are not the same in the way in which we look at it, looking at it linear as point A to to point B from one minute to the next minute. And we say, God, why is your, your justice so slow? I think when it comes to this issue in particular, there's a couple of things I want you to keep in mind. Number one is this, there is a huge difference between description and prescription in the Bible. There's a major difference here. And the difference is this, there are things that God describes in his word that he tells us happens and, and don't we want him to, to tell it to us honestly? Like, like don't sugarcoat and don't pretend that, that these things didn't happen, that there were these systems that existed within the time of the church in Colossae. There were unjust practices that were occurring all the time, and these were descriptors of it. It doesn't mean that God is an advocate for it. He can describe it. We can see instances in, in the book of Genesis where Abraham takes Hagar as his, as his slave and, and all the consequences that come from that story in Genesis 24. And we would say God's not endorsing that. He's rather describing something historically that actually happened. So there's a huge difference between description and prescription. Number two is this. It's a term that theologians use and it's called progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. And this is important because it, it helps us understand this idea of, of bond servants and, and slaves and, and servants. What it is, it's the recognition that scripture sometimes, leave, sometimes left deficient systems in place while planting seeds into the system of its undoing. So God leaves the system in place. And then he plants seeds along the way that begin to undermine it. And the first seed that he, that he plants is he sends Christ to come, not to overthrow the political corruption and the political system. But he says, first and foremost, before we get all of that right at the second return of Christ or at the end of the eschaton, when all of it's over, what we're going to get right first is we're going to seek to see men and women reconciled to God because the sin issue is a much bigger issue and is the heart of the very thing that we're talking about. It's the very root of everything. And so God progressively begins to plant those seeds and Christ comes and he preaches on freedom and he preaches on all the good things that come with being a follower of Christ. And so he is progressively doing it. He is progressively uh, revealing those things and he is progressively changing those things over and over and over and over again. And I want to remind us 
of a couple of just really truths that exist here when, when wrestling with this idea of slavery and, and bond servants. Number one is this, if you're taking notes, write this down. In the New Testament, the bond servant practice of the first century is nothing like we think of it today when we say slave. It's very different. Yet I will tell you that you will find scholars at times that don't necessarily agree with that statement. And we can't say within every instant, within every relationship, within every slave that ever existed that they were, they were just bond servants. We, we know that not to be true. That some were treated harshly and some lives were taken and, and they were uh, unjustly put to death in different ways. Yet throughout the New Testament, at least this word, it doesn't mean the same thing when we hear the word slavery today. Because we read into our, our, our feelings and our emotions. We read into the books that we've read and the, and the videos that we've seen. And we have seen how, how awful and evil and sinful and wrong slavery was here within this country. We, we know that to, to be true and, and we repudiate that in, in every which way. In fact, the Bible actually repudiates it as well. Did you know that? The Bible in Exodus 21 says this, anyone who would kidnap another and sell him must be put to death. Anyone who, who would steal another man or, or steal another woman or, or steal another child, the consequence of that in Exodus 21 is you receive the death penalty. And so God's law was, was there the whole time. God, God was there saying, saying, I don't agree with this. Yet when Paul comes in and as Christ has come and he's preaching Christ and Christ crucified, his main ambition and his main goal is to begin to undermine that system with seeds of the gospel in the life of the church and in the life of the culture that existed. So in the New Testament, these words are not the same thing. Secondly is this, is that one would argue that the New Testament subverts the entire premise of any form of slavery. You say, well, pastor, how does it do that? But when we look at what scholars just call a New Testament ethic, a New Testament ethic. In other words, if you were to summarize the entirety of the New Testament, how would you summarize that be? And what would that statement be? Maybe it would be something like this. How about do unto others as you would have them do unto you? How about love your neighbor as yourself? That means you can't own slaves. You can't own another person. You can't steal another person. You can't hold them into captivity. The entirety of the New Testament, it subverts that premise. It calls us brothers and sisters in Christ. He refers to us as a church, as, as a family. He says in Christ, there is no slave. There, there's no one free. This, this idea that we are all equal in Christ. We, we partake of the Lord's Supper because it's an equalizer. In other words, he, he says, you remember that story in the, in, the, in the Lord's Supper? He says, listen, some of you are getting sick because the rich are eating the meal and the poor are starving while you're partaking of the Lord's Supper. And he says, you sit shoulder to shoulder alongside each other, rich and poor, black and white, and everyone in between. You are, you are family with one another. To the point to which we, we look back and go, those that would, would seek to own and, and those that would seek to, to hold captive in any which way, they are, they are wrong and we repudiate that in every which way. Thirdly, as already been said, rather than issuing a political manifesto, we know the Pharisees wanted Jesus to come and overthrow the Roman government. He didn't do that. Instead, he begins to plant seeds, which began slowly to undo the order that existed in Jesus' day. Slowly but surely, 
Understanding that our pace is not God's pace. God's pace is not our pace. And so for whatever reason, in his infinite wisdom, he doesn't just overdo it. There's sin that exists deep within the hearts of men. And on our very worst days, we we are capable of, of anything on our very worst days. And so we, we are told elsewhere, don't trust your heart, don't let it lead you, but rather be guided by truth and, and his word and, and all of these things that God has shown us and he has revealed. And so God was gradually undoing that system. And so when he comes to this place in Colossians, when he comes to this place in Ephesians, when he comes to this place in 1 Peter and he's talking about bondservants and he's talking about slaves, he's not endorsing those things. But rather the subtlety there is that, that you live as a, as a people that walk under the authority of Christ and that you follow those that, that have been given over you. It's why the context of this, we spent a whole week talking about the relationship between husband and wife. We, we spent a whole week talking about the relationship that exists between fathers and, and sons because all of this has to do with authority. And all of this drills home to, to God's people that we would live as people who work and worship as men and women under authority. And we submit and walk faithfully with that. I wanna sort of wrap this up and I wanna sort of give us a couple of key things that I want you to understand because so, so much of this has to do with the relationship that these bond servants had in particular with the modern day vernacular would just be their boss. The boss that they, they went and they, and they worked for to pay back the debt. And, and oh, by the way, I didn't mention earlier, every seventh year, uh, anyone who was in debt was, was to be released from that. It was called the year of Jubilee in the book of Exodus. And so there was, there, no, there was no lifelong sentence, if you will, in the midst of it. But every seven years in the year of Jubilee, those slaves, those bond servants would be released from it. But a couple of things that I want you to see in relationship to, to those that, that we work with and those that, that live under authority. Number one is this, when we try to understand work, submission, all of those things and whatever we're doing, one of the first things I think we keep in mind is this, that the very first way to serve God in our work is to be competent in what we do. It's to be competent in what we do. It doesn't mean that you're the smartest guy in the room, but it does mean that whatever it is that you've been tasked to do, whether it's teach theology or be a financial investor or an advisor or to be an accountant or or to be a lawyer or a CFO or a CEO, it is absolutely to pursue competence in your field. That as a follower of Christ, it it is incumbent upon you to make sure that, that you know what you're doing and ask the questions. And so go to school, stay in school, learn, study, read. But I'm telling you, if you quit learning after you get out of school, you stopped learning and you're dead in your tracks. To be competent in what you do is the very first way that we serve God. Number two, I think there's a recognition in the context of the relationship with our authorities is that even when we are faithful, things don't always go our way. Even when we're faithful, sometimes you get fired. Even when you're faithful, you you get let go. There's budget cuts. Even when you're faithful, relationships break down. Even when you're, you're faithful, perhaps you're not trusted. Even when you're faithful, all of these things can happen. And just because you're faithful in submission and walking under as someone under authority, it doesn't mean things are going to go your way. Just because you are faithful with your spouse doesn't mean there's not an erosion in the relationship. Number three is this, 
The Bible does not teach us in the context of our working relationships to be consumed with work. Work work should not be ultimate for us. I think husbands and and fathers in particular, we, we may struggle with this at times to a greater degree because so much of our identity isn't not wrapped up in what we do. College student coming up, what, what am I going to do with my life and, and how am I going to spend my time? It's wrapped up in, in what we do. Work is not ultimate. It's a piece of the puzzle. It's a part of what God has called us to do and, and it's a good thing for us to work and we ought to labor in those things. But the Bible says, do not be consumed with work, but rather be consumed with me for I am the consuming fire. To be consumed with your family, though that family is not ultimate, to be consumed uh, with your relationships, with your spouse, but that's not ultimate. Ultimately, it's Christ. Do not become consumed with it. Fourthly, as this is already said in a different way, the Bible teaches that our work ought to be exemplary. It ought to be the best. And all that we do, we're striving for those things. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We make mistakes. We mess up. We learn from the mistakes. We correct it. We move forward. We don't make the mistake again. We're exemplary in all that we do. This is how we honor those that have entrusted us into the care, whatever the responsibility is, whatever the job description says. And then lastly, in conclusion, one of the purposes of work is to serve other people. It's to serve other people. Therefore, we should choose something that benefits others, helps others. And so the greatest way that, that we serve, our greatest vocation, our greatest thing that we do, it, it, it should be that we, we ultimately, we contribute to, a, to an organization that, that serves other people, that helps other people. Why do we do that? Because God's called us to places of service. People are a privilege. Service is a privilege. People are our mission. And so we get our hands dirty and we roll up our sleeves and and we seek to do work in a way that honors and in a way that brings glory to him. And and then we follow, though we we may not, are not comfortable with the language here that exists on master and slave, we still pursue to serve justly. We still pursue to serve fairly. We still are reminded that we serve the Lord ultimately. And then our goal is to make our boss look as good as we possibly can because everything we do is, is excellent. And he finds you invaluable because of your contribution, because your attitude and, and your heart and, and the way that, that you follow through, though he's not your master, though you're not his slave, but you, you obey him and you do what he asks and, and when he asks and you honor him or her or whoever that is that's been entrusted for your care. But ultimately, even as a Christian, even as an individual that's been walking with God as best I can since I was 17 years old, I'm 40, even though I've spent almost all of my life trying to to serve and honor Christ, it's hard to to do these things that he he calls me to do. And, And the truth is, if I did not have Christ in my life, if I did not believe his word, if I had not been, been saved by him at, at 17 and radically changed and made into a new person, I, I, to be honest with you, I wouldn't want to do any of this. I wouldn't want to do any of it. He is the one that makes me new. He is the one that reconciles. He, he is the one that, that teaches me to, to live under, under his authority and that authority that's been revealed according to his word. And so I follow it. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, um, can I just plead with you? 
and state frankly. It's, it's really as simple as this, that when Christ calls us to follow him, it's not complicated. It simply looks like this, and you can say it in a, in a thousand different ways, but, but it really is as simple as those who would want to be saved and know they are separated from Christ, it just simply is stated like this, God, would you save me from my sins? Jesus, would, would you save me from my sins? I believe who you say you are. Help, help me believe it even further. Help me grow in that belief. But Father, would you, would you save me from my sins? And maybe you're here today and you've done that. You've called upon his name. But I know a lot of Christians that have a hard time living as people in their, in their offices and, and honoring their, their, their bosses and their coworkers. I know a lot of Christians that have a really hard time with living as, as those who live under the authority of someone else. And frankly, there's times where we can be just as bad as the rest of the world. And so my challenge for my brothers and sisters that are here is to ultimately just live in, in such a way that the world sees Christ in you. Christ crucified in you, which makes you want to be exemplary, which makes you want to be the hardest worker there, which makes you want to be the most invaluable employee in your bank, at your law firm, wherever it is that you find yourself in school and whatever it is that you're doing, you do it all for the glory of his name. The glory of his name. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word that it has been written, that it is true and good. Father, we want to be a people that do not bow away from difficult subjects. We don't want to be scared off by those. That we know in your goodness, as you progressively revealed in time and, and you abolish this terrible practice, Father, we, uh, we say thank you for that. We rejoice in that. And so, Father, we, we ask that as a people, we become equipped according to your word, that we are like Paul says, we're ready to give a, a response in season and, and out of season. That ultimately we could pray the prayer in verse 17 where, where he says, whatever we do in word or deed, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, would you help us this week to do that? We pray in his name and God's people said, amen.